Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is Catherine MacDonald here announcing 3CR Radical Philosophy Program. It's on 8.55 on your AM dial. Your fantastic philosophy program introducing us to women philosophers. Calling all supporters of refugee rights. Join the Refugee Action Collective for the Human Rights Day fundraiser on the 10th of December at the Reverence Hotel Footscray. Come and enjoy some of Melbourne's best music, comedy and performance poetry. Your support helps with costs of future RAC campaigns for refugee rights. Check out the Reverence Hotel's website for details. Tickets are $15 or $10 concession. Refugee Action Collective is a 3CR supporter. If you want life, you want love, you want hope, you've got to fight for it. You want freedom, you want justice, you want peace, you've got to fight for it. Hi, I'm Jackie Broad. I'm an ARC Future Fellow at Monash University, Melbourne, and I'm listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. Are you looking for childcare but are not quite ready for long day care? Why not try Occasional Care at Holden Street Neighbourhood House? It's a great introduction to a caring environment, offering social interaction and engagement in a nurturing environment. Bookings are now open for 2017, Monday to Thursday, 9am to 2pm. $18 concession rate is available. To book a tour or for more information, please call 9486 1972 or email childcare at holdenstreet.org.au. Holden Street Neighbourhood House is a 3CR supporter. Morning everyone, my name is uh, Anke Snook and I, uh, I really like to listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio on your AM dial. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. I think dogs are the most amazing creatures. They give unconditional love. For me, they are the role model for being alive. Gilda Rader, It's Always Something, 1989. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Professor Helen Stewart about freedom and free will. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Could you explain about determinism? Yeah, so I've I've mentioned determinism a little bit, I think, already. So it's the view that, well, roughly speaking, it's the view that everything that ever happens was necessitated by the way things were previously together with the laws that govern our universe, something like that. So everything's kind of caused to happen, bound to happen, 
by because of because of the way in which particular circumstances found in the world interact with the laws of nature to produce, as it were, the next the next time slice, if you like, of reality. That's determinism, and it's been a very very influential view. I think, particularly following the 17th century revolution, you know, and when when people really began to appreciate the universality of things like Newton's laws, which applied not just on Earth, but also to the planets. You know, this idea that there were laws kind of woven into the fabric of reality that governed absolutely everything. I think that picture of the universe persists. And it, it persists certainly amongst many philosophers. And the kind of vision of the universe as a, as a giant machine, I think, has been tremendously influential. You know, each the, the state of the machine at any given time, combining with the laws to produce the state of the machine at the next time. You know, that's that's a very powerful picture. But of course, we don't know that determinism is true. I think a lot of people assume that, at any rate, at the levels relevant to human action, relatively macroscopic levels, but we have good reason to think that determinism is true. I think that's not right. I think we have been bewitched by, <laughs> bewitched by spectres and models of reality that actually developments in the biological sciences are giving us reason to think very doubtful. And the, the specialness of life has not been accounted for within many kind of deterministic visions of the world, or, or, or so I think. So my inclination is to think that rather than being a sort of respectable scientific hypothesis, determinism is a kind of mad, kind of mad philosophical, metaphysical position that we have no reason to to, uh, to give any credence to. So it's been, of course, a, a hugely important concept in the free will debate, the concept of determinism, because free will has been thought to be in conflict um, with determinism for various reasons. But of course, to worry about that question, whether free will is consistent with determinism, you kind of got to think that determinism's got some chance of being true. And I guess I really don't think it does have much chance of being true. I would be astounded um, if it were to turn out that determinism is true. I think indeterminism is actually the more sensible, more credible position. And because of the of the fact that I think that our concept of agency is indeterministic, I think it's actually the more commonsensical view to hold. It's the, it's the view that fits most readily with our pre-theoretical way of conceiving of the universe, or, or so, I've, so I've tried to argue. In your book, you argue for a distinctive version of incompatibilism. Could you explain about this? Yeah, so incompatibilism is the view I've just, uh, I've just described according to which free will is incompatible with determinism. And I, I, of course, agree that free will is incompatible with determinism. I don't think they could coexist together at all, although... I should probably say that very, very, very many philosophers would disagree with me there. Um, but nevertheless, that is what I think. But I think it's important to be extremely clear about what the reason is for thinking that free will is incompatible with determinism. And I call my view agency incompatibilism to highlight the fact that 
it's agency itself, on my view, that, that is incompatible with determinism. My claim is that to be an agent, you have to be able to settle things. And that if determinism were true, there wouldn't be any settlers of anything because things would already have been settled right, long in the past by the way things were in the past together with uh, the laws of nature. Everything would be already settled. So there couldn't be settlers who settle things themselves at the time of action. There couldn't be things such that things are really up to those things, if you see what I mean. That, in my view, is the best reason for thinking that free will is incompatible with determinism. It's because agency is incompatible with determinism, and agency is certainly a necessary condition for things like free will and moral responsibility. Um, now, that justification for thinking that free will is incompatible with determinism is very different from that which is offered by a lot of people. What a lot of philosophers will say is something like this. Yeah, free will is important because of moral responsibility. So let's think about moral responsibility. If we want to blame someone for something, say, it wouldn't be fair to do so if we at the same time thought that person couldn't have done other than they did. If in some sense they were determined to do what they did, blame wouldn't be fair, holding the person morally responsible wouldn't be fair. So there's a kind of fairness argument for, moral uh, for thinking that moral responsibility is incompatible with determinism. But then there's an entirely different, more metaphysical argument, which is the one that I try to offer, for thinking that agency is incompatible with determinism. And I think it's very, very important to separate those two strands of argument. They haven't been separated, they've been run together. Uh, and of course, objections to one type of argument don't necessarily apply to the other type of argument. So it's tremendously important to keep, to keep them separate, in my view. Yes, it doesn't seem like life would be very much fun if you did think that every, every action that you had had already been predetermined. Well, that's right. I mean, some people seem more impressed than other people by that thought. I mean, I've always been very impressed by that thought. You know, if the way things were, like, say, last week or last year or uh, last century, because, of course, if universal determinism is true, any t you can take any time, uh, the way things were at that time, together with the universal laws of nature, make it the case that I'm speaking to you on the telephone right now. <laughs> That's a very, very bizarre thing to think, I, I, I think. You know, it's very bizarre. It's very much at odds with our sense of ourselves as the settlers of matters in our own lives. Some philosophers have kind of sort of come to terms with it. They're compatibilists. They think, oh, yeah. It is sort of true that it was settled way back when. <laughs> but nevertheless, I can be an agent. Nevertheless, I really am free. I, you know, but I just don't find those thoughts at all plausible. If things really are settled, I ain't settling them. <laughs> and that, that seems extremely uh, convincing to me as an argument for incompatibilism. So do you think that anybody ever really acts freely? Well, it depends what you mean by really act freely, of course. I, I think there are agents, and so I think there are settlers, and to be able to settle things is definitely a power that people have associated with 
freedom. So I think there there are free agents in that sense. But I also think that certain ideas that people have had about what freedom would have to be are definitely unattainable by kind of any regular human being. Um, you know, some people have wanted to say that, you know, freedom is the capacity to sort of forge yourself out of nothing. But that's crazy. I mean, no one is unaffected by important societal and cultural and educational influences, which are beyond their own control. Uh, no one is kind of radically free. But, there, you know, there are degrees. <laughs> there are degrees of that kind of freedom. Like, and I, I very strongly believe that, you know, things like education can make you more free. You know, they can make you more independent, more free of some of the societal and cultural influences because you know, you'll be aware of the fact that other societies, both geographically and historically, have been very different, have had different value systems, have done things in different ways. And I think that gives you a sense of your own capacity to do things in different ways, should it seem to you that, you know, that's a, that's a, a good thing to do. I think it makes you more independent-minded, and independent-mindedness is, is a source of freedom. So while I... While I deny that anyone is kind of radically free, radically autonomous, and you know, totally outside the constraints, the influences um, of, of culture, society, and so on, I think I think there are things you can do to make yourself freer, uh, for sure. Yeah, Philosophy I, I might be one of them. <laughs> Philosophy yeah. might be one of those things that makes you freer. I see. I'd like to think. I certainly agree with that. Now, I think with the education system, I think it's really important that people be taught how to think, not what to think. Yes, absolutely. And philosophy is, is good at that, teaching people how to think but not what to think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so would you like to tell us about your books that you've written on this subject yeah, so I've only got one book really specifically on freedom. It's called The Metaphysics for Freedom. Uh, it came out in 2012 over here. I don't, I'm not sure about Australia actually. May, may have been 2013, but I, I, I think I think it came out 2012 too. Yeah, so um, I wrote it over a period of many years. It's kind of the book I always knew I needed to write. I'm so pleased I eventually managed to finish it. Uh, it was a long job because I kept... When you write a book over a long period of time, you kind of change your mind all the time. You know, you, you come back to your old views and you think, yeah, no, that's not right. What I put in Chapter 1 there, I'm going to have to change that. And, of course, new, new stuff comes out all the time as well, to which you feel you have to sort of respond in the book. So, in a way, it's this kind of never-ending task. And... You know, there comes a point, of course, when you've just got to grit your teeth and send it off and stop making changes. Uh, but it, it was a book that, you know, took it took a long, a period of many years to write, really. So, and yeah, so it's, it's, it, it's a funny mixed book in a way because there's some discussions of the traditional free will debate engaging with the philosophers, you know, who write in on the modern day free will debate there's some of that but there's also lots of other stuff that I think is relevant that isn't taken on board generally speaking by those by those other philosophers so there's lots of stuff about animals 
I did quite a lot of reading up about animals and animal agency. I did quite a lot of reading about our kind of concept of agency. So I had a look at developmental psychology, which was fascinating. The, the, it turns out, unbeknownst to me, that from a very, very early age, something like three to six months, young babies are already categorizing animate things in completely different ways from inanimate things. They seem to sort of hedge their thinking around with completely different causal frameworks when it comes to animate agents as compared with inanimate ones. And that's very fascinating to me because, of course, I think that those systems continue to function in that way for the whole of our lives, that we do think about agents, true agents, in very different ways. We think of them as meeting sort of different causal requirements from from anything inanimate. And I think that's, that's a very important fact needs to be recognised, and the free will literature mostly hasn't recognised it. Mm, that, that's quite interesting. I was, I was just thinking as you were saying that, how we have such different interpretations of inanimate things. Well, yes. I mean, a lot, of, a lot, I think, depends on how much of this stuff you think is innate and how much is learned. And I think what some people have said about my work is that, okay, so you might be right that there are these different kind of cognitive systems, a cognitive system for understanding agents and another cognitive system for understanding the causal interactions that go on between inanimate things. And, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if evolution had thrown up different systems for dealing with those different types of things because animate agents are terribly important <laughs> for other animals to be able to single out and react to. So if we did have evolutionarily distinct systems, as I say, it, it wouldn't be a big surprise. But then people say it doesn't follow from the fact that we've got these evolutionarily distinct systems, that those systems are cottoning on to true distinctions in nature. And I think that's where the argument, you know, that that's the argument it's hard to make, you know, to try to make the argument from this is how we tend to think of things to this is how they ought to be thought about. That's a, that's a difficult divide to bridge. And I'm not sure I have successfully bridged that divide, actually. It's, a, it's the place in the argument of the book that I feel most unsure about, quite how to move from this is how we think of things to this is how they are. Yes, I, I heard recently there was a documentary on how humans have evolved and how there's no way that we could have evolved to the stage we're at now if it hadn't have been for our interaction with dogs. And I thought that's actually quite interesting. And I thought then, well, does that mean that people such as myself, who is a you know, very enthusiastic dog lover, Am, am I more yeah. evolved than other people? Say, for example, maybe yourself, who's a cat lover. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's the? I mean, what's the argument? What's why? Why? Why is it being said that we couldn't have evolved to this particular? Yeah, oh, look, I didn't. Place I didn't actually see hunting. 
Yeah, I didn't see the documentary. Well, it wasn't it wasn't all about hunting either because I know with the Australian Aboriginals, um, the dingo doesn't seem to serve any purpose because they can't take the dingo with them when they hunt because of the the smell of the dingo. The predators would smell it, so they yeah, they right, really need right. to leave that at home and. There's been quite a few researchers trying to find out what the connection is between Indigenous people and the dingo, and they they haven't actually been able to find out anything from that. But it's, it's sort of more European people and their connection with dogs. Look, I, I'll have to do a bit That's more research into that. But I found yeah. it, when I heard that, I found it absolutely fascinating being, you know, such a, a dog lover myself, and I thought because there is still that very, very strong bond with some people between them yeah. and their dogs. I, I know in Melbourne we have homeless people living on the streets because they've been offered accommodation, but they've been told they can't take their dogs with them, so yeah. they've refused yeah. accommodation and yeah, yeah. they, yeah. you know, consider um, continue to be homeless because of this strong connection yeah. with their dogs. Yeah. So I thought there must be something in our evolution to yeah. have that stronger connection. Well, of course, there's all kinds of places, you know, in nature where there's kind of symbiotic relationships where different types of organism evolve together and are useful for one another. I mean, there are lots of botanical examples, but of course, there, you know, there are, there, are, there are lots of zoological examples as well. And it's possible that there is a certain kind of symbiotic relationship between the human and the dog, which is what I think is what you're saying this research suggested. I mean, I can think of different ways it could have gone. So and dogs have, have been involved in work of various sorts for human beings, you know, pulling sleds, <laughs> looking after sheep and, you know, all herding, all these sorts of things. Guard dogs and things too. guard Guarding. dogs. And, and there's a certain sort of companionship as well, isn't there, that dogs provide, which is also important for life. <laughs> So, yeah, I can imagine an argument to the effect that the, you know, it's the human-dog relationship is, is that important. It's a kind of symbiosis and it's caused us to kind of develop in certain particular ways that wouldn't have been possible or at least wouldn't have been easy had it not been for our reliance on dogs. It might also be that, I don't know, the... the the capacity that we have to, to train dogs and make them understand us has been a, a way into our preparedness to to train and to try and bend to off the various other forms of animal that we've come to rely on, you know, like horses and so on, uh, which are obviously also playing that symbiotic role for us. I mean, horses have also perhaps even been more important, I'm not sure, than dogs. That's very true, even... I remember one day I was coming home from work and my mother was standing in the middle of the road and just sort of looking down the street as I, I turned in, I turned the corner. Anyway, I pulled the car over and, and she came over the car and she said, look, I was going to get to the to the bottom of this. She said, it's absolutely incredible. And she said, every day 
just before you come home, probably about anywhere between five and ten minutes before I come home from work, my dog would stand at the front door wagging her tail and she said there's no way she could have heard your car from that distance because she knows it's a good five to ten minutes before my car pulls up and I come in. And she had actually been asking me, do you sit in your car for five minutes? And I said, no, (laughs) I pull up and I come straight in. And it wasn't, wasn't at the same time every day. Often I'd stop off and I'd do some shopping or I'd go and visit a friend. And she said that it was absolutely incredible how my dog knew... And there's no way she could yeah. have heard my car from that distance when I was coming home. It was sort of like a, a sixth sense. And it, it seemed quite spooky to me. It does seem spooky. I can't imagine what the explanation of that could be. That's remarkable. Um, I mean, I can understand, you know, if it was the same time every day that a dog can form a a general idea of how much time has passed and be ready, you know, when you're about to come in at five or whatever it may be. But, yeah, if it's variable, I can't imagine what's going on there. That's very, very funny. It is, it is. And I can only sort of look back into um, the evolution of of people and their closeness to dogs to sort of make any sense of that. So so are are you planning on doing any more further research into this topic? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll, I think I'll always be doing stuff on you know, free will and agency in some form or other. I mean, there's other things I, I'm interested in too, and want to sort of move on to to look at. But also, also connecting with with animals. I mean, I've become, I suppose, much more interested in animals than I than I ever have been before through this work on free will. I, I you know, I thought animals are important for free will. We need to think about them. So I've thought about them. And now I think they're important for all sorts of things, you know. And, and one of the things I'm interested in, in thinking about more now is, is perception. Thinking about the senses, the fact that lots of animals rely much more than we do on, on different senses. So touch, smell, much less than we do on vision in many cases. We, I think we have a very visual way of thinking about perception. Philosophers thinking about perception and nearly always thinking about vision. And I want to try and think about some of those other senses and how they work and what conception of, of the relation between ourselves and the world we would have if we were thinking mainly about the other senses instead of thinking about vision. So that's, that's, uh, that's something I'm interested in taking up. Yeah, that's quite fascinating as well. I have heard that our sense of smell we have the longest memory for. I know that it's certainly true that smells are related to memory. I mean, I there's a there's a kind of I'm it sounds a bit gross, but it's a kind of disinfectant that's used in toilets sometimes, which I think must have been used at the caravan we used to stay in when I was a kid. And I only have to smell that smell to be instantly transported back. You know, I feel like I'm about five again, going into the caravan, all excited because the summer holiday's about to start. It's so evocative, um, that particular smell for me. And I know lots of people report similar things. That there's a particular smell which will just kind of transport them immediately back to um, some previous time in their lives. It's, it's clearly a sense that connects 
extremely viscerally with with memory. Oh, yes, no, I think that's very worthwhile. And thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, you're very welcome, Beth. I've really enjoyed it. And I've been speaking to Professor Helen Stewart about freedom and free will.